let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night and for uh, this chance to launch into book four of Mere Christianity. Lord, we all come to you with different things that we've had on our hearts and minds today. We pray that you would help us to set those things aside and to listen for what your Holy Spirit might have to say to us tonight uh, through this material. Lord, we thank you for this book and for the way that you have used it for your kingdom and the lives of so many people. We pray that you would bless our time tonight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as usual, I want to begin by saying together our scripture verse from 2 Peter chapter 1, and I would invite you to say this along with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And there's so much good stuff in there uh, to meditate on, and I commend that passage to you to think about during the week. So I want to say a word of welcome to everyone who may be new this week. Um, we continue to get new folks, and this particular juncture is a good place to join in uh, because the book makes a shift uh, when it goes into book four that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, so if you're new, there are a couple of ways to approach this class. Um, the first is just, just be what we call on the beach. That means you can be doing whatever you would like, uh, but kind of listening to this in the background or not listening from time to time, as the case may be. You can read or not read. You can do whatever you would like, but we're happy to have you along for as much as you want to be involved. If you'd like to snorkel, that means you go deep on the things that you find interesting um, and stay on the beach for the things that seem overwhelming or not so interesting. Uh, the scuba diving option is for the people that want to read some extra books, read some extra articles, listen to some music, meditate on poetry, uh, all those other resources that relate to this wonderful book, uh, but no one is obliged to be a scuba diver. And then lastly, just a reminder, if you're not on my email list, um, please uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email so we can get you added. That email list is the way that you get the chapter summaries and all of the different resources that we have. And also a word for those of you who might be new about how to read this book, please do not sit down and try to read this book all at one sitting. It will make you crazy if you do that. Uh, much better to read one chapter at a time, try reading out loud, and the C.S. Lewis Doodle is a great resource I heard from someone this week who's fallen in love with the C.S. Lewis Doodle, which makes my heart happy. Uh, if you have never looked at C.S. Lewis Doodle, um, I commend that to you. Uh, whoever puts that site together is really a genius. So I'm going to see whether we can get the music to work tonight. Uh, the music has something to do with what we are talking about. So I'm going to try hitting it, and you can see if you can figure out what it is.
So if you know what that is, you can send me a little chat. Okay, so Sarah and Chloe both figured it out. Um, it is one of my favorite hymns. It pains me to turn it off uh, because it's such a great hymn, but it is uh, the hymn that is known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. And it is one of the great ancient hymns of the church most scholars believe that the attribution to St. Patrick is correct uh, and that this hymn was probably written about 1700 years ago. And it is a beautiful hymn that is full of rich imagery and profound theology, particularly about the Trinity, uh, which we're going to begin to explore a little bit tonight. So a little review of context. First, this is England in wartime. Uh, this particular book uh, being conceived and written and broadcast uh, between the middle of 1943 and the early part of 1944. Uh, the war is still not going great. Uh, there are all these other fronts that are opening up. The British troops are in Burma um, as well as in Europe. Uh, it is a very, very dark time. And Lewis is still going weekly into the BBC in the midst of the bombings of London uh, to do these broadcasts. And he's done that for all of book one, all of book two, and all of book three. And what we have been doing up until tonight is reviewing the whole logical argument that Lewis has been using. And the reason for that is the first three books are constructed kind of like that game of Django uh, where uh, if you pull out too many pieces, the whole thing collapses. And so because it's built as a logical argument, I've wanted to review each time to give the foundation. But book four makes a little bit of a turn. So uh, we are not gonna review book one, book two, and book three anymore. So when Lewis finished up book three on Christian behavior, he was overwhelmed because he was doing a lot of teaching at Maudlin College, he had also taken on some administrative responsibilities there. He was an air raid warden. He was writing several other books and it was right in the middle of the busiest part of uh, the academic year when the talks ended in November. So he was snowed under uh, and the BBC kept coming after him, writing letters saying, please, please do another series. And he would always answer and say no very politely. Then they started coming to Oxford to visit him and beg him. And so finally, after several of these visits and multiple letters, he agreed to do this book four uh, called Beyond Personality or First Steps and the Doctrine of the Trinity. And I know a lot of people, when they hear the word the Trinity, um, they begin to break out in hives and get very nervous uh, because they think this is gonna be something that is so abstract and complicated that they won't be able to understand it. Uh, but I wanna really encourage you to hang in there because I think Lewis does a great job 
with this material. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of the background about how this came to be. So on June 11th, 1943, Eric Fenn from the BBC wrote to Lewis and said, have you thought any further about the series of more theological talks you were inclined to when I last saw you? We have been considering lately a suggestion made in an informal conference on religious broadcasting, which we held recently, namely the need for a series of talks which would take some of the more abstruse theological doctrines and show what sort of difference they make, both to thought and to conduct. That seems roughly in line with what you had in mind, and I wonder if we might explore it further sometime. I should like to talk this project over you with you. Would it be any use my trying to arrange to come to Oxford? So of course, that's exactly what happened. He came to Oxford. Lewis wrote back on June 16th with the tentative agreement to do the series and he listed out the topics as follows. The doctrine of the Trinity, creation, the incarnation, the two natures, the resurrection and the ascension. That's a lot. So uh, Lewis and Fenn then had several more visits and discussions and they firmed them up in a letter in July for a series of seven or eight talks that we recorded on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. starting in January, 1944. So there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of back and forth about possible titles. Um, Lewis proposed three, what Christians think God is like, or what is God like, the Christian answer, or beyond personality, or the Christian God. So the BBC was trying to organize itself and they pushed the series back to February 15th and then they had a major difficulty. They had some political pressure to put a particular person on and the powers that be at the BBC instructed Fenn to inform Lewis that his talks would have to be moved to 10.20 p.m. That would mean trips to London at the worst possible time for bombings with a return to Oxford around 3 a.m. And remember, Lewis would be teaching that next morning. Fenn tried to get permission to broadcast directly from Oxford, but it was felt to be a grave security risk that the Germans might bomb Oxford if they knew the BBC was broadcasting from there. So Fenn tried to soften the blow by saying maybe they would record some of the sessions. But Lewis was very perturbed. And he wrote this great letter to Eric Fenn, uh, sort of tongue in cheek, where he says, a pox on your powers. A talk at 1020 means catching the midnight train and getting to bed around three o'clock in the morning. If you know the address of any reliable firm of assassins, nose slitters, garreters, and poisoners, I should be grateful to have it. I shall write a book about the BBC. You see if I don't. Grr. <laughs> Lewis had a great sense of humor. So Fenn writes him back and says, thank you for your letter. I can assure you that if I had known any reliable firm of assassins, nose slitters, garroters, and poisoners, I should already have made full use of them myself. I take my hat off to you for being willing to do three of these things live. I can imagine nothing worse than arriving to Oxford in the middle of the night, unless it was arriving at Bletchley. And of course, Bletchley is Bletchley Park, where the uh, code breakers were working, and it was a particularly bleak sort of place. So Lewis is uh, not very happy, but he is going ahead with this anyway. So that brings us to the beginning of book four, 
And the interesting thing about this is Lewis begins uh, by saying, everyone has warned me not to tell you what I'm going to tell you in this chapter, in this book. They all say the ordinary reader does not want theology, give him plain practical religion. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. Theology means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him, which are available. You are not children. Why should you be treated like children? In a way, I quite understand why some people are put off by theology. I remember once when I'd been giving a talk to the RAF, an old hard-bitten officer got up and said, I've no use for all that stuff. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him out alone in the desert at night, the tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with that man. I think he had probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes look at a, and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. And that way it has behind it masses of experience, just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only while yours would be a single isolated glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. And the second place, if you wanna go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you're content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map but the map is going to be more use than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. Now, theology is like the map. Merely learning and thinking about the Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Doctrines are not God. They're only a kind of map. But that map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God experiences compared with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map. What happened to that man in the desert may have been real and was certainly exciting, but it leads nowhere. There's nothing to do about it. In fact, that's just why a vague religion, all about feeling God and nature, and so on, is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work, like watching the waves from the beach. But you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. Neither will you get anywhere by looking at maps without going to sea, nor will you be very safe if you go to sea without a map. In other words, theology is practical, especially now. In the old days, when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with a very few simple ideas about God. But it is not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, 
That will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ideas about God, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God, which are trotted out as novelties today, are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. To believe in the popular religion of modern England is retrogression, going backwards, like believing the earth is flat. For when you get down to it, is not the popular idea of Christianity simply this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, and that if we only took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order and avoid another war. Now, mind you, that's quite true, but it tells you much less than the whole truth about Christianity, and it has no practical importance at all. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? We never have followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher? But that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, is it likely we're going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. But as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they are talking about something quite different from this popular religion of Jesus as a moral teacher. They say that Christ is the son of God, whatever that means. They say that those who give him their confidence, their trust, can also become sons of God, whatever that means. They say that his death saved us from our sins, whatever that means. There's no good complaining that these statements are difficult. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world we can touch and here, we may think the claim false, but if it were true, what it tells us would be bound to be difficult, at least as difficult as modern physics, and for the same reason. Now, the point in Christianity which gives us the greatest shock is the statement that by attaching ourselves to Christ, we can become sons of God. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment because. Lewis is saying something that is so important, and I think it's even more relevant now than it was when he wrote it. That seems to keep happening in this book. But what he's saying is that when you think Christianity, the Christian religion, and Jesus's teachings are just one more source of good advice about how to build a better society or how to be nice to people, you are totally missing the point. And I wanna have a little book plug here. Um, if you're on the beach, don't worry, and I hope you didn't feel triggered by all that stuff he was saying about being on the beach back there. Um, but there's a terrific book by N.T. Wright, Bishop Tom Wright, that's called Simply Good News. And the whole book is about why Christianity is not good advice, but that it's good news in the same way that news that the war is over is good news, that everything changes as a result, that it's no longer business as usual. And so many of us, even in the church, 
it's so easy to fall into thinking of what Jesus says and the whole Christian faith just as good advice, but it's not that. It is a transformational change that moves you from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And it is so important not to forget that. So um, back to what Lewis has to say here. So he says, sons of God is such an important concept. One asks, aren't we sons of God already? Surely the fatherhood of God is one of the main Christian ideas. Well, in a certain sense, no doubt we are sons of God already. I mean, God has brought us into existence and loves us, looks after us, and in that way is like a father. But when the Bible talks of our becoming sons of God, obviously it must mean something different. And that brings us up against the very center of theology. One of the creeds says that Christ is the son of God, begotten, not created. And it adds, begotten by his father before all worlds. If you're at St. Philip's, that should sound very familiar. We say that every week. Will you please get it quite clear that this has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man, that man was the son of a virgin. We are not now thinking about the virgin birth. We are thinking about something that happened before nature was created at all, before time began, before all worlds, Christ is begotten, not created. What does it mean? We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean or not. Uh, but Lewis is going to tell us. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he's clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. Now that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. A statue has the shape of a man, but is not alive. In the same way man has, in a sense I'm going to explain, the shape or likeness of God, but he has not got the kind of life God has. Let us take the first point, man's resemblance to God first. Everything God has made has some likeness to himself. Space, space is like him in its hugeness, not that the greatness of space is the same kind of greatness as God's, but it's a sort of symbol of it or a translation of it into non-spiritual terms. Matter is like God and having energy. Then again, physical energy is a different kind of thing from the power of God. 
The vegetable world is like him because it is alive and he is the living God. But life in this biological sense is not the same as the life there is in God. It is only a kind of symbol or shadow of it. When we come to the animals, we find other kinds of resemblance in addition to biological life. The intense activity and fertility of the insects, for example, is a first dim resemblance to the unceasing activity and creativeness of God. In the higher mammals, we get the beginnings of instinctive affection. That is not the same thing as the love that exists in God, but it is like it, rather in the way that a picture drawn on a flat piece of paper can nevertheless be like a landscape. When we come to man, the highest of the animals, we get the completest resemblance to God, which we know of. Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in him. But what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God. We use the same word life for both, but if you thought that both must therefore be the same sort of thing, that would be like thinking that the greatness of space and the greatness of God were the same sort of greatness. In reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature and which like everything else in nature is always tending to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food, etc., or plastic surgeons uh, is bios. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is Zoe. Bios has to be sure a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but only the sort of resemblance that there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having Bios to having Zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue, which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor shop. We are the statues. And there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Now, one of the beautiful things about this, and Lewis doesn't give himself away here, is that he actually is going right back to the Greek New Testament. When you read the New Testament in the Greek, the words bios and zoe are all over the place. And of course, in, when translated into English, they all say life. But for example, when you look at John 10.10, one of the most awesome verses in the Bible, when Jesus said, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word there is zoe. It is that life that is the God life that is the statue coming to have flesh and being a real man. And of course, those of you who are fans of the Narnia stories will instantly recognize the fact that the evil queen Jadis goes around turning living, breathing men and creatures 
into statues of stone and that Aslan comes and breathes on them and that stone melts away and they become flesh and blood full of the life that Aslan breathes into them. So there's some good stuff here. Um, I realize sometimes as soon as you hear a Greek word, some people's ears and eyes start glazing over, uh, but just hang in there. These two kinds of life are so important because when you begin to see that the life of God, the life that exists in the Trinity is of a completely different sort than our mere biological life, you begin to start to get even just a little glimpse of the great miracle of what Jesus has wrought uh, by his death on the cross for our salvation. So that brings us to the next chapter uh, where he starts in about the Trinity, the three personal God. The last chapter was about the difference between begetting and making. A man begets a child, but he only makes a statue. God begets Christ, but he only makes men. But by saying that, I'm only making one point about God, namely that what God the Father begets is God, something of the same kind as himself. In that same way, it is like a human father begetting a human son, but not quite like it. So I must try to explain a little more. A good many people nowadays say, I believe in a God, but not in a personal God. This is kind of like since we just had May the 4th, May the 4th, May the fourth be with you. Uh, that sort of impersonal Star Wars kind of force uh, that we like to think about because it doesn't interfere with us. I believe in a God, but not in a personal God. They feel that the mysterious something which is behind all other things must be more than a person. Now the Christians quite agree, but the Christians are the only people who offer any idea of what a being that is beyond personality could be like. All the other people that they say that God is beyond personality really think of him as something impersonal, that is, as something less than personal. If you're looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it is not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and the other ideas. The Christian idea is the only one on the market. Again, some people think that after this life, or perhaps after several lives, human souls will be absorbed into God. But when they try to explain what they mean, they seem to be thinking of our being absorbed into God as one material thing is absorbed into another. They say it is like a drop of water slipping into the sea. But of course, that is the end of the drop. If that is what happens to us, then being absorbed is the same thing as ceasing to exist. It is only the Christians who have any idea of how human souls can be taken into the life of God and yet remain themselves. In fact, be very much more themselves than they were before. I warned you that theology is practical. The whole purpose for which we exist is to be thus taken into the life of God. Let me say that again. The whole purpose for which we exist is to be thus taken into the life of God. Wrong ideas about what that life is will make it harder. 
And now for a few minutes, I must ask you to follow rather carefully. You know that in space, you can move in three ways, to left or right, backwards or forwards, up or down. Every direction is either one of these three or a compromise between them. They are called the three dimensions. Now notice this, if you're using only one dimension, you could draw only a straight line or a crooked one. If you're using two, you could draw a figure, say a square, and a square is made up of four straight lines. Now step further, if you had three dimensions, you can then build what is called a solid body, say a cube, a thing like a dice or a lump of sugar. And a, a cube is made up of six squares. Do you see the point? A world of one dimension would be a straight line. In a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure. In a three-dimensional world, you still get figures, but many figures make one solid body. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now, the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. Now, some of you will remember we've talked before about that old kindergarten exercise called Flat Stanley. That was an exercise popular back when I was in kindergarten. And what you would do is you would draw on a piece of paper a stick figure of a guy that you would name Stanley. And you could color him with crayons if you wanted to. And you could fold him up and take him with you because he was only in that dimension of the paper. But what you would do is during summer vacation is he would travel with you and we would take Polaroid pictures, remember those? Take Polaroid pictures of Flat Stanley with us in different places. But of course, the way we experience those places, because we existed in many more dimensions as real live human beings, and Flat Stanley was just a drawing on a flat piece of paper, what he experienced was utterly different than what we experienced. Ours had a fullness that his couldn't even imagine. So that brings us to the divine level. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive a being like that just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. But we can get sort of a faint notion of it. And when we do, we are then for the first time in our lives getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. It's something we could never have guessed. And yet once we've been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things we know already. You may ask if we cannot imagine a three personal being, 
What is the good talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn in to that three personal life. And that may begin any time, tonight, if you like. What I mean is this, an ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God, God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which to whom he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him, which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal, so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into the higher kind of life, what I call Zoe or spiritual life. He is being pulled into God by God while still remaining himself. And that is how theology started. People already knew about God in a vague way. Then came a man who claimed to be God, and yet he was not the sort of man you could dismiss as a lunatic. He made them believe him. They met him and they had seen him killed. And then after they had been formed into a little society or community, they found God somehow inside them as well, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found that they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three personal God. This definition is not something we have made up. Theology is in a sense experimental knowledge. It is the simple religions that are the made up ones. When I say it is experimental science in a sense, I mean that it is like the other experimental sciences in some ways, but not in all. For example, if you're a geologist studying rocks, you have to go and find the rocks. They will not come to you. And if you go to them, they cannot run away. The initiative lies all on your side. They cannot either help or hinder. But suppose you're a zoologist and you wanna take photos of wild animals in their native haunts. That is a bit different from studying rocks. The wild animals will not come to you, but they can run away from you. Unless you keep very quiet, they will. There's beginning to be a tiny little trace of initiative on their side. Now a stage higher. Suppose you want to get to know a human person. If he's determined not to let you, you will not get to know him. You have to win his confidence. In this case, the initiative is equally divided. It takes two to make a friendship. When you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. And in fact, he shows much more of himself to some people than to others, not because he has favorites, but because it's impossible for him to show himself to a man whose whole mind and character are in the wrong condition. Just as sunlight, though it has no favorites, cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror as clearly as a clean one.
You can put this another way by saying that while in other sciences, the instruments you use are things external to yourself, things like microscopes and telescopes, the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. That is why horrible nations have horrible religions. They've been looking at God through a dirty lens. God can show himself as he really is only to real men, to real women. And that means not simply to men or women who are individually good, but to men or women who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. Consequently, the one really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for him together. The Christian brotherhood is, so to speak, the technical equipment for this science, the laboratory outfit. That is why all these people who turn up every few years with some patent simplified religion of their own as a substitute for the Christian tradition are really wasting time. Like a man who has no instrument but an old pair of field glasses setting out to put all the real astronomers right. He may be a clever chap. He may be cleverer than some of the real astronomers, but he's not giving himself a chance. He doesn't have a telescope. He has no equipment. He has no funding. He's just got an old pair of binoculars. And two years later, everyone has forgotten all about him. But the real science is still going on. If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. So Lewis has covered a lot in these two chapters, and it's a lot that deserves to be chewed on. One of the things that I think is so important in these chapters is getting your head around what Lewis said early on um, in that first chapter of book four, that embracing theology is important because when we think we don't wanna fool with theology, it means we usually have wrong ideas rattling around in our head. But when we begin to try to stretch our minds to love God with our minds, um, it really makes a difference. So some of the implications of all this, first, prayerfully lean into understanding your faith and the theology behind it, not just as good advice, but as life-changing and transformational. Part of the idea here is the more that we lean into our faith and the more that we lean into the theology and try to understand it, the more that our sense of wonder at who Christ is, what the incarnation means, what God has done and the plan of salvation, those things become so much more real and full to us. And I love this passage from Ephesians 3. Um, Ephesians is a great book for leaning into this whole first principle, but this particular verse is so great. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. And I like to think Lewis was thinking about this verse and his part about the dimensions when we see in here breadth and length and height and depth because there's such truth to this because so often we think that as Christians, it's all about Jesus coming into our heart. And there's a sense in which that is true, but the much more powerful and real part of the Christian faith when we come to Christ is not that he comes to us, but that we are drawn up into him, that we are drawn up into that loving fountain of life that has existed from all eternity and the Trinity. It is something that is a cause for awe and wonder that causes us, as uh, Paul says here, to bow our knees before the Father. The second implication is to understand the difference between bios and zoe, and ensure you are nourishing zoe daily, just as you do bios. Most of us are really good about nourishing our physical body. We are nourishing our physical life in this world and in this body, and we take great care with our food and eating healthy and the time that we find figuring out what we're going to eat and all of those kinds of things. And we need to do exactly the same thing with our spiritual life. Think about how much of your life, how much of your household, how much of your time goes into what kind of biological um, nourishment you get. And contrast that with how much energy and time and space in your house goes into nourishing Zoe, that spiritual life, that life that Jesus has come to give us abundantly. Jesus himself said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's a deep truth in that and that we need to hunger for that word. Jeremiah talks about eating God's word, feasting on it. And it is so true for us today. Our appetites have been dulled, but we need to rewaken and rekindle them. The third implication, the whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken up into the life of God. My friends, we need to cultivate habits to reinforce that reality, to remember that our highest and best is being caught up into that life of the kingdom of God. And you'll notice with Jesus, everywhere that Jesus goes, the kingdom of God breaks out all around him. Miracles happen, healing happens, love happens. People leave behind their other ways of life because they are caught up into the life of God. And we living in this world where we are citizens of a different kingdom, we need to cultivate habits to reinforce this reality. And again, this terrific verse from Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My friends, when we come to Christ, we die. As Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not yet, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live, I live by the love of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is so important. We need to think about what are we seeking? Because for so many of us, we're seeking things that are below. We're not seeking the things that are above where Christ is and setting our mind there. And I want to give a big movie plug for a movie that came out in 2019 called A Hidden Life. The title comes from that verse that we just read. It's by the great filmmaker Terrence Malick. Um, this book is based on a true, this movie is based on a true story um, in Germany and Switzerland in the hills uh, during World War II of this farmer and his wife uh, as the power of the Nazis encroaches. He has to make a choice about whether to stand for his faith or to just go along to get along. And it's a beautiful story about that, but I think even the larger subtext in the whole movie is just the wonder of life and the pulsing life and beauty of creation, the pulsing life and beauty of who God has made us to be. Uh, it is not a high action movie, but it is a profound movie. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a great movie to watch with people on a big screen. It has a splendid and beautiful soundtrack. Uh, and it's a great thing to discuss uh, with some fellow believers after you've watched it. We may even try at some point as things are starting to open up to show it here at St. Philip's. And then fourthly, seek God together in deep fellowship with other believers. As we hear uh, almost every Sunday in church, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. Jesus says this, that when we gather in his name because of the Christ life, the Zoe that is in each one of us who is a believer, that Christ himself is more powerfully present when we gather together as believers than with any one of us alone. And then this great passage from Acts. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was power in that community because of the deep fellowship that caused God himself to be revealed. And shortly after that, it talks about how God added to their number daily those who are being saved because people saw the power and the presence of God in the lives of the believers. And then from Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that hope of that life that Jesus gives us without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, that means to think carefully about how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. My friends, we need each other and we need each other in order to be stirred up by the Holy Spirit, to experience his grace and his fullness, to experience and lean into that life, that Zoe, that abundant life that Jesus longs to give us. Let's close by saying this passage uh, that once again is so very relevant to what we've been talking about tonight. I invite you to say this with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the wonder of what you have done, of planting this Zoe life, this deep spiritual life in the world through the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that you have called us who know you into that fountain of life that is the Trinity, that has existed before all time and before all worlds. Lord, we confess to you how small our understanding is of what that life means and how tempted we are to not think about it or lean into it. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to hunger for you, to hunger for that life and to lean into you and the things of your kingdom that we may be transformed more and more into the image of your son in whose name we pray, amen.